for so many science fiction readers, because there is that conversation aspect, a lot of people are looking for what's the next beat in that conversation? What can someone add to what has already come? Welcome to the Hybrid Pub Scout podcast with me, Emily Einelander. We're mapping the frontier between traditional and indie publishing, and today I'm joined by Michael R. Underwood. Michael R. Underwood is an author, podcaster, and publishing professional. His series include the Re Reyes Geekomancy books, the Stabby Award finalist Genre Knot series, and the forthcoming Annihilation Aria. He's been a bookseller, a sales representative, and was the North American Sales and Marketing Manager for Angry Robot Books. He is also a co-host of the actual play show Speculate and a guest host on the Hugo Award finalist, The Skippy and Fanty Show. Mike lives in Baltimore with his wife, their dog, and an ever-growing library. He also loves geeking out with games and making pizza scratch. Welcome, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So I have to admit, like, I do like sci-fi, but I am I am a dabbler in many genres and never had the chance to get into it. So my experience has been pretty basic. So my icebreaker question is Star Wars or Star Trek? So this is funny for me because it's been really intensely one or the other at different times in my life. Um, when I was very small, I watched Star Wars all the time. So that's the original trilogy, four, five, and six, for folks who came later. And, you know, it made a huge impression on me. Then there was this big gap of kind of Star Wars stuff. And I was listening to books on tape of the kind of the expanded universe stuff, New Jedi Order or New Jedi Academy, and then New Jedi Order. But I got really into Star Trek. So Next Generation was really foundational for me in terms of TV. And that series taught me a lot of the kind of um, structural um, tools that science fiction has for interrogating the world. So episodes with like the crystalline entity where you have a truly alien intelligence and how do you understand it? And a lot of the other um, kind of subgenre elements in the suite of tools that science fiction has, I learned through Star Trek. So they really both mean a lot to me. I was reading uh, the Broken Earth trilogy by N.K. <laughs> Jemisin at the same time I was re-watching The Next Generation. And I remember just sitting there going, there was an episode of Star Trek that was just like this. And I'm like, of course, you probably saw that too. <laughs> so yeah, I can see how that would impact your uh, writing a lot. Yeah, and I think one of the opportunities in science fiction is to build on what other people are doing. And there's a strong tradition within the genre to the point where you get things like uh, the Ansible becomes kind of a, a commonly used technology across a bunch of different properties when it originated in one specific science fiction story. And that great conversation aspect, I think, is to the genre's credit. So you get something like Star Trek where, oh, yeah, here's a one-off episode uh, interrogating an interesting premise. And then someone might come along and adapt it to their own interest and their own background. Um, and you can kind of build back and forth on top of what has come before. I love that. I love what like a, a deep culture sci-fi has, not to be too academic about it. So let's talk about your book a little bit. Yeah. Specifically, what's it been like having a book come out during a pandemic? Yeah, so my book uh, is called Annihilation Aria. It's a found family space opera, and it's very much kind of kind of more action adventure end of the science fiction genre. 
and so it had been scheduled for February of this year, and there were some challenges getting promotional stuff going, so we decided to push it back to May. But of course, this was before the pandemic, and we didn't know that those three months were would make a gigantic difference. Now, even by February, I knew that I was going to be happier putting it out in May than if we had tried to, to rush it uh, in February. Uh, and so when the pandemic happened, pretty quickly, I was expecting that a May release would, would basically just be all digital. Um, and so we decided to push it back into July. And I think it's still going to be almost entirely digital promotion. But a lot of my list up until this point have been digital first or digital focused. So my, my debut urban fantasy series was all ebook only. And then audio came out second. And then I had a book with 47 North, which is an Amazon imprint, which is very much ebook and audio focused. So a lot of the books that I have released, I've already been used to promoting them with a digital focus, trying to, to move ebook and audio copies more so than physical ones. So it wasn't as much of a difference. It's just more a difference from what I was expecting. Going into this book, I was thinking, oh, okay, it's going to have full distribution. The publisher goes through Baker and Taylor Publishing Services, so there's going to be reps taking it out into the world. And I had a certain um, narrative that I built for myself of what promoting the book was going to look like. It's going to look like more bookstore events, probably going back home to Indiana, where I have some connections uh, in the bookstore world because of my uh, professional background. It's going to look like going to the Origins Game Fair that has a science fiction world, um, as well as you know the Nebula Conference, which is a big thing in science fiction fantasy. And it was that mix of bookstore events, bigger conventions, smaller conventions, guests, posts, podcasts, you know, trying to blanket everything. And instead, it's a lot more podcasts. It's a lot more uh, focusing on the content marketing that I threw through my, my own uh, podcasts. It looks a lot more like trying to be smart and a bit more flood the zone with Twitter activity and promoting on Facebook and kind of giving myself the permission to be really loud there because for so many people, everybody's attention is, is pulled in 15 million different ways, whether it's because you're an essential worker and you're doing overtime or it's because you're working from home and you have kids or you have caretaker duties or you're stressed because of politics or just the kind of pandemic stuff. And I know from my marketing professional background that however much I talk about something, almost everybody is only going to hear a tiny slice of it. And just understanding that digital only and digital first means that I really have to repeat myself and figure out how to do so in a way that is tolerable and sustainable for me. And then still interesting for people who are maybe uh, plugged in a little bit more than other people while still trying to reach as many people in my network as I can. And probably uh, refine those things that are very short and very repeatable. Yeah, like I was already used to trying to figure out three or four different ways of pitching a book because in my, my previous professional life working at Angry Robot, I would go to conventions. So that's Origins, Gen Con, sometimes um, bookstore or bookseller conventions. And at the big trade shows, there's tens of thousands of people and I don't have to sell a book to every one of them, but especially something like a Comic-Con, people are coming at geekdom from so many different directions. I have to learn how to sell any given book three or more ways. So, oh, okay, am I going to sell this to you because you said that you liked The Expanse and I'm going to make a comparison there to this TV property? Or do you talk about 
liking a particular type of characters because every book can be sold in a lot of different ways and learning to do that for my day job has been really good for learning to how to do it for myself. Um, it's still harder to do for myself, even with a lot of practice doing it for others. So can you talk a little bit about like how long you've been a part of the sci-fi fantasy comics scene um, in different capacities and how you viewed the arena differently in all those capacities? Yeah, so I think the first time I was really involved in like geek gamer science fiction fantasy communities was being a local fixture at my hobby slash role-playing game store in my hometown as a kid. And this is from age like 13 and on. Uh, so that was my third place. It's where I hung out with friends. I played lots of card games, miniatures, battle games like Warhammer or something like that. Uh, and then increasingly tabletop role-playing games. The tabletop stuff kind of moved away from the store because it's a bigger chunk of time and it's it's not as good marketing, at least at the time. This was way before the era of like big actual play shows like Critical Role or something. So my first community activity was really in a small, very local community around a store. So it was game nights, it was magic tournaments, and it was a lot of getting to know a small number of people fairly well, but in a narrow fashion. Knowing a lot of how someone plays games and how they comport themselves in competitive situations, but not necessarily knowing a lot about their story overall. And from there, I kind of I moved into a LARP community. And this was a Changeling the Dreaming LARP, which is one of the White Wolf games. And it got up to having 70-ish regular players. So it got really big for a LARP. Um, and this is like rock, paper, scissors LARP, more than padded armor running around in the woods LARP. Okay. And they're kind of two major schools of, of LARPing. Uh, so mine was more like cosplay, walking around in a student union, uh, pretending to be, you know, changelings and vampires, as opposed to putting on uh, padded barbarian armor and running around and camping in the woods. So it would be like, for a normie like me, it would be like murder mystery night. Much more like murder mystery night than any of those other things. So like LARPing let me kind of translate my tabletop experience into something that felt even more like directly applicable in social skills, which was nice growing up as a nerdy kid. And so like from there, I went to grad school and in grad school, I was really just kind of being an academic. And then I did, I danced tango. So tango is my social life. And then I was doing my graduate work studying tabletop role playing games. So that was kind of folding my academic interest and my kind of individual hobby interest in together. And then after that, I really started entering science fiction fantasy spaces as a new to the field writing professional. Um, so I started submitting fiction before I started working as a bookseller, but then I was doing those things at the same time. And I moved into being a sales rep. I was still submitting fiction and I actually, I did my in-person interview for the Angry Robot job the same week as my debut novel came out. So oh those two careers have really been intertwined the whole time. I think it's interesting that you went the marketing route rather than um, most of the authors I talked to. Well, I mean, I've talked to a couple of authors who's, who have been booksellers, but like a lot of mm -hmm. them are editors. And right. usually those two things run parallel for a lot of the people I've experienced in the industry. So I think it's interesting you went that other way. Is there a reason for that or did it just kind of happen that way? I think the split probably split from kind of the more common route, uh, I think came from the sales rep job. So I had finished my master's degree, was applying to PhD programs. I was teaching one course a semester at a local community college and working retail. 
And my dad also works in publishing. So he knew somebody at the company that had a posting open and arranged an introduction. So I like absolutely had a major in through a family connection, which made a big deal. And a lot of my professional career is built on that. And it would be silly for me to to erase that. So I want to be really clear that I've had that advantage as well as other advantages. Um, but this job was for a commission sales representative. So like Penguin Random House, like the big five, they have their sales staff is all in-house. They work for Hachette, Penguin Random, Penguin Random House, whatever. So these are full-time employees. A lot of publishers that are a little bit smaller to a lot smaller will instead hire a commission sales team. And what that means is like, okay, you're a publisher that puts out 20 books uh, a year, but you really want to be sold into the retail field and with wholesalers. You want that reach. Rather than hiring your own team, you make an arrangement with a commission team. So I was one of initially four reps and then later on three reps. And when I started, my territory was Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, and Michigan. And then when the team condensed, I added Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, and the Dakotas. I only went to South Dakota for two seasons, and then I moved it to phone. So I spent three years doing two full selling seasons a year and a lot of follow-up um, on the off seasons, which was hand selling. It was going to bookstores, figuring out what they needed, trying to figure out how to best present the list that I had and match what it had to offer with what any given bookstore or, or wholesaler or museum needed. And that really made me kind of round out my understanding of the industry and learn to think on my feet about the different ways that a book can matter. And I really liked that part of engaging with publishing. I've done critiquing and editing and kind of a little bit of consulting on editing, but the most popular thing that I do on the editorial side is editorial input within the framework of how can you sell this thing. So it's Let's look at your query letter, your synopsis, and the first 50 pages. And then let's talk about the story that these materials are all telling. Because a query, a synopsis, and the manuscript itself are each telling the story in a different way to a different purpose for a different audience. And those audiences overlap frequently. An agent, you need to do well by all three. Uh, once you're into a publishing house, maybe the synopsis matters more than the query and things like that. So that was bringing the experience of being on an editorial team, but mostly not as the acquiring editor to an author and trying to help them figure out how to do that. And I think that's been a lot of why I do the kind of marketing and career consultation rather than direct editorial development. The other big thing is that I think my editorial inclinations are mostly on the very high level. And so if someone wants to come to me for a structure edit, it's going to take me a long time to do that. And I've decided to not pursue that type of work because I think it will take more time than I want to put into it. And if I'm going to charge a decent rate for my time, it's going to be really expensive. And probably uh, sap some of your creative energy that you would rather put toward your own projects, I would think. I, like, I was the acquiring editor on a, a few books at Angrobot where I was the one that presented um, the book to the team in the editorial meeting. And then frequently somebody else would be the um, actual acquiring editor and either do the, the negotiation with the agent or author and or be the one to do the structure edit. I did acquire one pair of books and do the structure edit on the first uh, that was Skyfarer by Joseph Brassi because it was a very American book and I was the only American on the team at the time. And I had a really strong investment and connection with the work. And I wanted to try to expand my 
my skill set. So I pitched this to my boss and he said yes. So I was able to develop that a little bit, but it did really clarify to me just how much work it really takes to do the thorough, very hands-on editorial development that I think traditional publishing should offer the authors that they partner with. And I wanted to do a better job in being hands-on than I sometimes hear from my colleagues who work on traditional titles, where the editorial development that they get is very um, hands-off or um, doesn't challenge them as much as they would like to be. And authors who feel ignored or no one's, like it's been taken out of their hands, that kind of thing. Um, I think that it was good of you to bring up the fact that you did have an in into a publishing house, because I think that since there's so much talk right now of of how the industry needs to change, that we all need to kind of be aware of and admitting our own privilege. Like me, for instance, I was able to work an unpaid internship with someone who introduced me to my future bosses. And if if that hadn't happened, I never would have gotten a job at a traditional publishing house. And not everyone can afford to do that. So that it's important to be like, not saying that we can we just did everything ourselves and we're self-made people or whatever and so taking that that discussion about homogeneity and outright hostility toward BIPOC LGBTQ folks and even you know a lot of other people in certain houses who maybe didn't go to an Ivy League stuff like that how have you seen these dynamics play in the sci-fi fantasy genre And what do you think can be done better to make the genre and industry more inclusive? So I really started moving in science fiction fantasy professional circles in about 2005 when I went to World Fantasy Convention. And then I I think I missed a bit of stuff. And then I did Clarion West in 2007. And after that, I was much more frequently at conventions. And for a while, that was my primary point of contact with the, the intersection of the genre and the industry. Um, like mostly kind of fan conventions and some professional conventions. At that time, I was not generally aware of substantive conversations about inclusion, diversity, decolonization, whichever frame you put on it. It was mostly just not in in the spaces that I was in. And these these are spaces that were, especially at the time, overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly cis, overwhelmingly straight, overwhelmingly able or where disability was uh, erased or made invisible and people were masking because of the environment, which understandable. Uh, So by the time I started publishing novels in 2012, I think the kind of currents in culture overall were a lot more people were paying attention to the marginalized people that were already talking about these issues. And one of the things that I think has been the best gift to the industry and the genre from social media is people using social media to understand how much they've been missing out and using those tools to lift up the voices of people who had been pushed to the margins or kept on the margins. And so when I was starting my career at the time, the conversations I was seeing were about like, who's in your book? Who is in your stories? Who gets to be a hero? Um, And so like starting out as a writer, what I wanted to do was to not only ever just tell stories about cis straight white men. And so like my first series stars a bisexual biracial Latina. And I absolutely did not do everything perfectly well. And I learned over the course of the series and I tried to take criticism with as much humility as I could. If I were writing those books now, I would definitely do things different. Uh, but that's kind of part of having a longer career is Uh, I hope that at any given point in time in my career, if I look 
five or more years back in my work, I'm going to see a lot of things that I would want to do differently now. And I want to keep doing that because that means that I'm continuing to do better. Working in Gurubot gave me a lot more of a platform to be able to make any kind of difference in the field because I was able to call in manuscripts. I spent a lot of time looking at tweets in like pitch contests. So DV pit, SFF pit, calling in manuscripts, meeting people at conventions, going out of my way to make sure that I wasn't just talking to people whose backgrounds more directly matched mine and trying to go, okay, I'm going to actively put my thumb on the scale to try to counterbalance the systemic issues that I've seen and learning more from people in marginalized backgrounds and lived experiences, all the different ways that barriers are put up toward them, and then trying to bust down those barriers or at least create cracks in them where I could. And at this point, you know, I try to continue that, but most of what I can do is in terms of the consulting or it's in mentoring. So I've been doing mentoring with the Science Fiction Fantasy Writers of America organization and that's been really rewarding because I'm not in a position where I can put a manuscript on an editor's desk in the same way that I, I did at Angry Robot. Something that came up uh, in the pre-show was the idea of the difference between an ally and an accomplice. And this is something that I, I learned in the last few years that specifically in terms of racial justice work, uh, hearing from, from Black activists and just Black people living in the U.S., they would love to have more accomplices than allies. And for me, what that means is sticking your neck out. Uh, it means getting your, having your skin in the game. And so that's sticking your reputation on something. It means stepping back from opportunities in order to protest something that is perpetuating an injustice. And for me, it means treating it like it's a problem that matters to me, not a thing that I'm going to fix because I'm a you know, white savior, but something that impacts me because I refuse to set myself apart from it, that the struggles of my marginalized colleagues are my struggles and that I can be a part of the solution because I am enmeshed in the context that is the problem for them. Thank you for bringing up that framework. Um, I think that we need as many as we can possibly get because, you know, our brains all work differently. If there's something that helps you be an accomplice better, then run with it. So we're introducing as many of those as possible. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm actually curious about, you said that your first uh, series was only in ebooks, audio, and through an Amazon imprint. Did you see any cultural differences in the way that publishing worked in that different form? Yeah, so my, the, the Geekomancy books, so that was three novels and a novella from 2012 through the end of 2014. And that was with Pocket Star, which was a digital-only Simon Schuster imprint. Looking back, Simon Schuster did not have a great grasp on how to publish ebooks well um, overall at that time. Uh, so the first book did really well. They moved it up and launched it during San Diego Comic-Con at $1.99 and put ads behind it. So that book shot up. Once we got to the sequels, and as the, the kind of landscape of the types of like price promos that worked and how you could support them, as that shifted, the series uh, kind of dropped off and it didn't seem like the teams that were working on my, my books were able to keep up as much. 
working on a 47 North book, you know, the Amazon team has access to all the Amazon information. And there is kind of a firewall between the editorial and the kind of backend algorithm people, but there is not literally a firewall. Like they, the folks in the office, you can go down the hall. And so there's a, such a fluency and familiarity with those tools. And they're selling very much inside the silo. But already by that time, I was noticing that 47 North was shifting kind of focus and methods away from we're a science fiction imprint that just happens to be at home at Amazon toward something that felt a lot more like KDP Select Plus, where if you've got a book that's going that's likely to be able to do well in the Kindle ecosystem and for the Kindle Unlimited reader, then it will do even better because the team is able to, to push a couple of extra buttons or maybe get some priority getting books on Kindle first or something like that. And my book was a new weird superhero action adventure where it was drawing as much on China Mieville as like the authority comics. So it was a, a strange genre mash, and I think not a great match for what the Kindle ecosystem looked like at the time. You know, right now we talk about it, we talk about it in terms of subcategories and hitting your ideal reader and the focused on Kindle readership for new weird plus superheroes. That's just not much of an audience. There is supers, a supers audience, but it tends to be within a, a narrow framework. And so each step of the way, I've learned about how different companies kind of handled the ebook side of the industry because so much of my list has been digital first and in audio. And so, like the current book that's coming out later in July, it's print and ebook with Parvis Press and then audio with Dreamscape Media. And Dreamscape Media kind of came in with uh, an advance that's larger than the smaller press advance from Parvis. And so I have this situation where more money is coming in from here, but also who knows what's up with audio right now, because with the pandemic, a lot of people aren't commuting. And so many things are just totally up in the air right now that even 10-ish years of industry knowledge, I don't really feel like I have a strong sense of exactly what to do in as much as I had a clear sense of anything, because the stuff that I've learned is about approaches that are likely to increase your chances, because the closest you get to a best-selling guarantee is that the house or the author behind the title dumps a bunch of money into it. Like that's the closest you, you can get to a guarantee is be a major priority and get a lot of money behind it. So for right now with this book, I'm trying to apply everything that I've learned and I'm trying to not repeat the mistakes that I made or that I felt my partners made or the things that they didn't know at the time and you know do the best that I can with this title. I also was interested in seeing that you had worked for Serial Box, box or with Serial Box. Can you can you talk about that? I've been I've had my eye like on it, but haven't really looked into it at all in a way that made sense to me. So sure. So um, for for listeners uh, that aren't familiar, Serial Box is a um, a digital focused publisher that started probably five or six years ago now because what is time um, and like the kind of elevator pitch ideas behind um, Serial Box is HBO for fiction so it is you know developing a stable of works that they have exclusively or almost exclusively on their own platform. So Serial Box has an app, and then you can also get stuff um, through their website. It is ebook and audio focused. They do a lot of enhanced audio now. So the audiobook for Born of the Blade, the series that I did, had like sounds for magic and like clashing blades. And so it was like really value add in on the audio side. Another thing that's special about Serial Box is all the serials that they commission and buy kind of the IP for are collaboratively written. 
and the style of collaboration that they use is very much drawn from the American television model. So the first series that they did was called Book Burners, and one of the writers on that team is Margaret Dunlap, who is mostly a writer for TV. And so she kind of shared her experience working in a writer's room, and Zero Box then refined that into their model. So the series that I pitched, Born to the Blade, was actually a, like a remix of a world that I had written a trunk novel in many, many years ago. And I wasn't really doing anything with this world, and I had talked to some Serial Box people, and I was really mostly interested in the collaboration part. So I pitched this world, I talked with them, I wrote a world bible, which is about 40-something pages, there's a lot of, here's some key characters, here's a setting, it was kind of an epic fantasy political martial arts series, a la Avatar The Last Airbender meets Babylon 5 or The West Wing, with duelist diplomats who do magic fencing. Because yep. I have a martial really good at that uh, combining different stories in the pitch. It sounds like if you're going to do the kind of like crossover TV, HBO for books thing. Yeah, and I think a lot of what they've done has been able, has had that high concept aspect where you can go, oh, okay, it's X meets Y with Z, so that they can pitch to people who aren't necessarily the more expected ebook or paperback reader. They're targeting a lot of middle-class working professionals with commutes, and they're building in an app, so they're mostly looking at smartphone-oriented users, and they have a very specific model. The thing that was really most interesting to me was the collaboration. So I created this world, and I have the credit as the series creator, but the parts that are what people read and listen to, the parts that are really good are done collaboratively. And so I worked with Cassandra Kaw, Malka Older, and Marie Brennan to write the series, and we wrote the episodes all together, So, but divided by episodes. So I wrote episodes 1, 4, and 11. And then Marie wrote, I think, two and seven and 10 or something like that. So we used the writer's room approach. We critiqued one another's episodes, trying to keep things consistent. But then they also had an editor and we had a producer who, for our series, was um, the co-founder. So, you know, very tied into everything of what they were doing overall. And we got notes from the producer that were like, oh, this is what our users like from this. We really want you to open with as much of a bang as you can to try to pull the readers in and like, you know, doing editorial along those lines. And it was a ton of work. It was probably as much work, even though I was only writing about 30 something thousand words of the like 110, 120 for the season, it was as much work as a whole novel because it was developing the world, it was writing my own episodes, revising those, but also giving notes on other people's episodes and the developmental meetings. And okay, well, if this moves from episode seven to episode five, then how do we set it up here? And where do we put the subplot back in? And we were doing epic fantasy. So there were a half dozen or more major civilizations, a big cast, and it was a really ambitious project. I put a ton into it. I had a great time. I learned so much working with my collaborators who are all stunning, brilliant storytellers in their own right. And it's fun getting to see each of their careers take off even more so. The Marie, who was actually an old friend, we were in a critique group together when I was in undergrad and she was in grad school. Marie already had more of a career than any of us by that time because she'd been publishing for quite some time and her um, Natural History of Dragons series was already really taking off. And Malka had just gotten started as, a, as an author with Infomocracy that made a big splash. And Cassandra has written a bunch of different stuff in horror and now she's doing a lot in video games. So each of them brought something to the project that was really different than what I could have done. 
And again, speaking to positionality, the world and the, the, hum, the rounded humanness of the various characters was the result of everybody having input. And the, the whole thing was definitely something that for me transcends the sum of the parts. And that was the huge takeaway for me. Because Cyril Box is a really specific model, their expectations are also very specific and they focus on their app and on digital rather than, than physical. So in some ways it was similar to other things that I'd done, but the rubric they were using to judge whether something was a success was very much their own thing. So I felt like editorially and critically the project was a success and creatively it was a success and I would have loved to do more with that team from Cereal Box's kind of internal metrics what the season had done uh, in terms of sales and subscriptions didn't justify more. So again, like TV, we were not picked up for a second season. Nice thing is because it's fiction, 10 years down the road, HBO could pick it up to become a series and then it has a new life and maybe we reassemble a writer's team. You know, fiction, it's easier to come back to something later on than even I think in TV, just because, you know, you can be an 85 year old writer and still kicking butt. And so that door is like mostly closed, but certainly not locked. And I learned a lot about collaboration and kind of how to share a creative space in a way that is really productive. And I hope that that will mean that sometime in the future when I am able to do some other collaborative project, I'll be able to bring these great tools and experiences um, to it and make something else really fun. It sounds like a really rare, life-changing experience for an author, frankly. Yeah, and it was pretty all-consuming. From writing the series Bible to release was probably two, two and a half years, maybe even a little bit longer because there was a bit of a delay between selling the series and assembling the writer's room, just because they had a lot of things going on. This was enough earlier enough in Cereal Box's history that they were doing like seed funding and really doing like customer acquisition because they were as much like a tech startup as a small publisher. Uh, do you spend any time in that app still? Do you uh, read and listen to stories on there that much? Or? Uh, I've kept an eye on things. I got to go to, or I read at an event, uh, the New York Review of Science Fiction reading series. And I saw S.L. Huang read from the Vela, which is a space opera series that she did with a few other people. I can't remember everyone's name, so I'm not going to try. So I, I read some of that and really liked it. I'm excited to to dip into some of those Marvel series that they're doing because they have actually moved into doing a lot of IP partnerships because Marvel had already done like a Wolverine audio drama. And then I think maybe they picked up that partnership. I saw some Doctor Who on there when I went and checked it out. Oh yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't <laughs> seen that. Um, but yeah, they really kind of expanded their mandates. They brought in some other short fiction that they didn't originate, but they're like licensing, I think as well as the IP work, like they did a season continuing Orphan Black. And, you know, they're kind of finding their way. And I, I try to keep my my eye on, on what they're doing overall, because I think the model itself is very cool, because they are not just trying to beat Amazon at Amazon's game. They're not trying to beat Penguin Random House at, at PRH's game. They're trying to make a space for themselves. And I think that's really commendable. It does seem really different. And I guess, you know, if they've been around for more than five years, they're probably doing okay. <laughs> Yeah, I think the, the IP stuff is probably opening even more doors for them. So we'll see. So speaking of different forms of storytelling other than uh, paper, you're a podcaster too. Yes. Tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, so I, I st the first podcast I joined was the Skiffy and Fanti Show, which is a kind of ensemble fan cast. A lot of what Skiffy and Fanti does is like reading and interviews with authors, but then also kind of fanish and fanish scholarly uh, reactions to TV and film. So 
a lot of what I've done with Skiffy and Fanti in the last few years is a Babylon 5 rewatch because Babylon 5 is a show that has meant a lot to me. Uh, some friends of mine recommended it in my youth leading into college and I finally watched the whole thing in college at like 320 resolution on on my computer. So like I couldn't tell that the CG was already dated and I didn't care because I was more interested in the characterization and the big plot stuff. So B5 is another big influence on something like Born of the Blade for me. So a lot, it was a lot of kind of pseudo-academic or fanish academic um, media criticism is a lot of what I did there. And I haven't done as much in the last couple of years. And more of what I've been doing is with Speculate, which when Speculate started, it was co-hosted by Gregory A. Wilson and Brad Bollier. Um, and I got to know both of them through conventions and stuff. Later on, I joined as a third cast member, and then Brad uh, left to mostly more focus on his writing. Greg and I continued, and the format for Speculate, um, the old format, I, I think is still really cool. We would pick a book, and then we'd read it. In the first episode would be our initial impressions, kind of reader, reader response to the book overall. In the second episode, we would, wherever possible, interview the author, and where it wasn't possible, we would speak with someone in the field or in the the industry who had a, a close relationship to it, either as a fan or some like professional relationship to the work. And then in the third episode, we would approach the reapproach the work as authors. So it was like, let's pull out this amazing display of craft that we see in this novel or in a story in this collection. And let's talk about how we can learn from it in a way that improves our own writing. I got a lot out of it. Um, over time, you know, life got really busy for both Greg and I, and we kind of reassessed and came to the idea of rebranding Speculate as an actual play show. Um, so that's actual play, tabletop role-playing games. Listeners may be familiar with something like uh, Critical Role or maybe The Adventure Zone or Friends of the Table is one that I really like now as well. So for that, we play tabletop role-playing games almost exclusively with our science fiction fantasy colleagues in the industry. So that's mostly authors, sometimes it's literary agents or editors or people who have some kind of professional or paraprofessional stake in the industry. And it's a lot of people who have like multiple hats because people wear multiple hats. Um, so I have played in games and GM games. Uh, right now we have two uh, mini series going on. One is uh, Blades in the Dark, which is like an industrial fantasy kind of heist oriented game. Uh, and that campaign is being run by uh, writer and editor and game designer Brandon O'Brien. And then I'm running a game of Scum and Villainy, which is like a space opera science fiction game, but I'm doing it in the Star Wars universe as a fan work. Um, we're just going to do the first mission of that later this month. And I'm GMing that. I've GMed a lot off and on throughout my life, but I had a few years where I was really away from gaming more. And Speculate has been part of this renaissance for me. And it's really fun to approach actual play as another form of storytelling, because like Born of the Blades, it's collaborative, but in a very different fashion. And as I mentioned earlier, I have an academic relationship with Tabletop as well. And it's so cool and kind of mind-blowing to think how much role-playing has become an entertainment form for an audience in a way that was almost unfathomable when I was doing my academic work. One of the things I talked about in that academic work was the fact that tabletop games are ephemeral. They are emergent narrative, and the, the, the narrative as a logical, coherent thing is only constructed retroactively because the process is writing, directing, acting, and all of the other things, if we're using like a stage or a film metaphor, uh, because the play itself 
creates the, the, the narrative retroactively. You know, you're going, oh, okay, can we go back a scene? Or I want to redo it this way. And you're engaging with randomness via dice in most cases, though there are, of course, some diceless games. So that type of storytelling and actual play is a lot more, requires a lot more flexibility. It is a lot more like performance than like fiction writing for me, though I still love when I can occasionally see a moment and then do that thing that in fiction would be like having the perfect paragraph at the perfect time to build on something that has come before and you know get done with that page and have chills. And I get so much joy from being able to do that as like player character or as the GM, but even more so seeing somebody else make an amazing moment out of what we built together. All those aha moments in real time in front yeah. of an audience. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I play some tabletop without a live audience, just a home game. And we've recently moved to having a live audience on Twitch and then we record and release the episodes later as a podcast. And there's definitely a difference there between playing with a live audience versus recording on your own and then something going out to um, an audience. And both of those are different than having an audience in the room from something like, you know, my brief stint as a, a vocalist for a tango band, which lasted a of about three months, or like doing theater or choir or something. So, you know, these are all just different facets and different manifestations of storytelling, which has been such an interest of mine since I was really small. And doing that sort of project academically in such a uh, niche area, I mean, I remember just no one being able to understand what my degree was, and it was just publishing. So mm -hmm. I can I can see that kind of being gratifying to be like, look, I did make this into something after I graduated. Right. Well, because <laughs> like very big, actually. Most of the popular media manifestations of publishing are something like Castle or Younger, where the industry is so glamorized and the writers never seem to be writing and, you know, like things are easy that should be hard and things are hard that probably are also hard. And it's just, it's strange being in a field that is so inaccurately represented. And I'm sure that that's actually very common. You just have to be inside a field to know how much popular media gets it wrong just have to watch an action movie with my dad who is a former marine <laughs> i bet <laughs> those are the wrong things on his jackets i don't even know what's called um like the epaulets or something <laughs> uh stripe um, <laughs> anyway in any case i would be the person writing the movie that he was yelling at i love it so tell me more about your book just what is it where can people find it when is it coming out etc yeah, so Annihilation Aria started as me telling an editor at a, a coffee meeting uh, years and years ago, I'd really love to write something that, that gives people joy the way that I had joy when I first watched the movie Guardians of the Galaxy. So that emotional touchstone is really at the heart of the book. And the way that that is manifested is as a found family space opera slash space fantasy. Uh, the main characters are Max and Lara. Max is a like a cheery xenoarchaeologist from Earth who gets Farscape style teleported to a distant galaxy or like John Carter of Mars and uh, Lara who is kind of the last of her line uh, of royal bodyguards of a species called the Janae and the Janae have different castes and they have uh, song magic and every case has their own voice register because I also have a performance background to inquire and my family is very musical. So I like use the stuff that I know for the world building there. And 
yeah, uh, Tango does not show up there, but I do have a, a, my very first published short story is called Last Tango at Gamma Sector. Um, so I used <laughs> it there. Uh, so Max and Lara kind of live on the fringes of uh, Galactic Empire and they have they live with and work with a cyborg pilot named Wheel, who kind of gets elbow deep into her ship, and then like the ship connects with her, you know, cyborg cyberpunk style, um, so that she's a better pilot. And what they do is they look for um, artifacts and lost archaeological sites of the, the empire before the current empire. And this this current empire is very much like controlling history. Here is the official narrative of how the universe was made, and you know the the Visenk are the you know your glorious uh, creator rulers, and they are benevolent when they're just you know they're a bunch of space fascists um, doing the thing that fascists do, which is redraw history to position themselves as you know unchallengeable victors. And so it's very kind of a little bit of Indiana Jones, a little bit of Star Wars, a little bit of Guardians of the Galaxy. It's all of these influences and touchstones that I grew up loving encapsulated in, okay, here's a story with a happily married couple at the core and they still have adventures and things are not perfect for them, but they are really committed to each other because in so many action adventure stories, you just get hot person A, hot person B, proximity smooching. And that can be really good. I wanted to do something different. And so it's also bringing in my martial arts background. So Lara has a great sword that does space magic. And it's like a bunch of wonderful space fantasy and space opera bullshit and like giant space turtles. Oh and it's, it, yeah, like mostly what I want people to take away from the book is a great time. I think that's especially useful right now. I started writing it before the 2016 election. After the 2016 election, the political edge of it got a bit sharper, but I also knew that I still wanted to give people a way to escape from the world, even if for a few hours, because I think that type of escapism is still incredibly powerful. And the action-adventure type of storytelling is still where a lot of my heart leads me, and it's where I kind of find myself going most instinctively, though I'm also trying to branch out in other other areas. So it can start a series. It's only a one book deal with Harvest so far. So there will only be more books if the sales justify it. And I want to be clear about that up front. I do have the very cheeky series title of the space operas because I have, I have space song magic and that lets me be kind of funny there. So <laughs> hypothetical sequel titles could incl include something like chaos canto or disaster duet or, you know, like whatever. The book is called Annihilation Aria. Like, I know what it is. Um, I'm not trying to do the thing that some other authors are doing where Malka Older's Infomocracy has fun and action adventure parts, but it's really digging into like political science as the field of science fiction that it's working with. This is much more an adventure story. You know, I try to do some fun stuff with world building and with tweaking and twisting tropes, which I really like doing in a lot of my work. But anyone who's listening, if you're looking for a fun ride to take yourself away from the world for a few hours, then check out Annihilation Aria. It's going to be in print and ebook on July 21st in basically any store that you could ask for. Um, there will be some representation at Barnes & Noble from last I've heard. If there's a BNN near you that's open, or if there are bookstores near you that are open, hopefully there will have some copies. Otherwise, you can order them. And then it looks like it will be on audio July 31st 
uh, about a week or so after. And I really like audio, so I'm super excited to hear what the, they're going to have two narrators uh, for that, which is fun. We'll see what it's like to launch a book in 2020. Yeah, <laughs> we will. And so you should, you should buy it because then he can write another one. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I would love to do more. Um, I, have, I have started things that have not been able to continue. So the way that I can make it uh, square kind of with myself and with any readers is to just be really clear about what is and isn't going to happen and what's a maybe. Well, I'm going to order it from uh, Jan's, which is my local indie bookstore. Because, oh, great. Uh, yeah, she gives me a 20% discount when I text her my orders. So maybe your local indie bookstore does something like that, too. I don't know. Yeah, I'd also love to shout out um, bookshop.org. Um, has been doing some great work, especially during the pandemic. It's kind of a, an iteration forward from the IndieBound website, and folks, uh, especially in the U.S., should check it out. And we do have uh, we do have a little representation of a hybrid pub scout on there. Um, oh, great! So we, have, we have a little store, so we'll add your uh, we add all of our guests' books to our store, so you can find it there too. Fantastic! Um, all right, where where else can people find you online? Sure thing. So folks can find me on Twitter at Mike R. Underwood. That's Mike and then just the letter R, Underwood. Um, My website is michaelrunderwood.com. I have a Patreon with essays about business of publishing and craft of writing at patreon.com slash Mike R. Underwood, like the Twitter handle. And then um, folks can find speculate at speculatesf.com and skiffy and fanty at skiffyandfanty.com. Sorry, I do a lot of things. <laughs> you do a lot of things. Um, and you can find us on Facebook at Hybrid Pub Scout, on Twitter at Hybrid Pub Scout, Instagram at Hybrid Pub Scout Pod. Please visit our website, hybridpubscout.com. While you're there, click join our troop, get our new guide, the HPS Guide to Picking Your Publishing Path. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's been great. And thanks for giving a rip about books. Thank you.